This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. You can be extraordinary. You have goodness in you. You have greatness in you. You can do amazing things. You could help at least one other person. Just reach out your hand. You can do it. And if we all did that, the world would be transformed. This week, my guest is Don Gifford Engel, a filmmaker, an activist, and co-founder of the Peace Jam Foundation, a foundation creating the next generation of Nobel Peace laureates. Don shares the origin story of Peace Jam, basically how a conversation with youth, a big idea from her husband, almost no money, and a visit to the Dalai Lama started everything off. We reminisced a bit about the amazing Nobel Prize winners that Peace Jam has brought together, and Don also tells me about the scientific side of the Dalai Lama and the projects that have most inspired her. Here's our conversation. Don Gifford Engel, welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm excited that we got to get this going. Me too. I've, I've watched you grow over the years, and I'm so impressed by everything about you. And it's just a joy, an absolute joy to be here with you today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm wondering... We met in Colorado, and I, how old was I, I wonder, like <laughs> 10 or something? Yeah, I don't it was know. like 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good Lord. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> let's jump in. Um, so my first question is about how, you know, our resumes are not really a full explanation of who we are as a person, and I'm wondering what's missing from your resume that you think people should know about you? You know, I'm one of those really lucky people who's had a chance to reach my full potential. I'm 64 years old. And I started out at age 19 working as an economist for the U.S. Congress, right? Um, And going to school at the same time. So I started my career early and then um, changed into an activist and started Colorado Friends of Tibet and started working for the Tibetan cause and then switched over to the Peace Jam Foundation. And what a learning curve, everything that we've done. It's our 25th anniversary right now for the Peace Jam Foundation, which my husband and I founded. And it's um, had a huge impact around the world. And then um, got to write a book, which you did even better than me, right? (laughs) And then I got to, to direct the films, the Noble Legacy film series. For example, we were the given the incredible honor of being the first ones to tell the life story in the feature-length documentary film of, of your, your grandfather and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And so it's been an, uh, an amazing ride. And I'm a mom, you know, I'm a professional woman, I'm a director and writer of films, I'm a grandmother. I, I've had a chance to experience so much of my life and to travel the world. I, I don't think anything's missing from my resume. <laughs> Honest Ooh, to God. That is nice to hear. And, you know, okay, so you mentioned that you sort of, you began your career as an economist for Congress. How did you make that move over to activism? It's because I met the Dalai Lama. Mm. So back before the Dalai Lama won the Nobel Peace Prize, and really nobody knowing, knew anything about Tibet, Somebody came and met with me, an activist named Michelle Bahana. Yeah. Um, and she, like, you know, five feet tall, giant uh, of a woman, you know? Right. I mean, you know, yeah. Just like, wow, who is this? And she told me about the human rights situation in Tibet and China. And I said, well, that's really wrong. And, and I volunteered to help. And at that time, the international campaign for Tibet was just 
two people in a closet, like the office was so small. It, no one knew what we were talking about. When we would have an event where we'd have a sign that said free Tibet, people would come up to us and say, I would like to get a free Tibet. You know, they didn't even know what Tibet was, that it was a country. Oh, right? Like this is way before the Dalai Lama won the Nobel Peace Prize. But because I was one of the first people to help with the international campaign for Tibet, we drafted the first piece of legislation that tied um, most favored nation trading status for China to the um, human rights situation in China and especially in Tibet. And it became an annual vote. Um, and it put Tibet on the map as a serious legislative issue. Um, I was invited to go to the very first meeting of the international campaign for Tibet. And it was in Dharamsala, India. And the Dalai Lama came in and we got to see him in all these different settings. And he was always the same. You know what I mean? Like everybody... Yeah. If you were a waiter, he treated you the same as if you were a uh, ambassador. Like he, he was, he is so pure and true. And so I saw a new version of leadership. I started working for the U.S. senator from my state of Michigan when I was 19 years old. And back then it was like madmen. You know, all the women were secretaries and answering the phone, and all the men were doing policy. And it was a big deal because I was on the policy side. Um, because I had um, was getting a degree in economics and whatever, but uh, that was like a major concession to have a female have anything to do with policy. So I I saw one version of leadership on Capitol Hill, and and a lot mm -hmm. of it was there was a face for the public, and it was who they really were behind the scenes. It was right. it was it was different. Um, it was kind of like a. A bit of an act, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, some senators and congressmen were better than others, but being around the Dalai Lama, who's just like the real deal, it made me start to question everything. Like, wow, wow, you can be the political and religious leader of a people and have that kind of pure integrity. Like, no matter what, he was the same. And yeah, so for, it was like a little internal domino just fell oop, inside of me. <laughs> and it got harder and harder to be in Washington, D.C. Because it's all about power and access to power and who you know. And how exhausting is it for people to have to have like a separate persona? You know, that's what I always wonder. I'm like, isn't this a lot of work for you to be <laughs> these two people? Like, right. couldn't you just be the one? You're right. But that's not how it's taught. You know, no. uh, the people who, you know, they, it's, it's interesting back when I was working for Congress and I know things are way more polarized now, but even then when the new senators and, and congressmen were elected, they were taken to a retreat, a Republican retreat, a democratic retreat, and they were told to pick their committee assignments based on um, where they were going to get their campaign contributions, right? So, mm. so even back then, and then that was 1976. Even back then, um, the only way to have power was to stay there, and so it became about getting reelected over and over right. again. And and I think that that's something that's wrong because that's not how our country was set up. In the United States, it's supposed to be initially it was citizen legislators. They were in Washington, D.C. for three months a year, and they all had real jobs. Like they were a farmer or they were yeah. a doctor. Or So we've lost that. Now we have all these professional politicians who it's year round and it's all about staying in Washington, D.C. And I, I, that, that really twists it right at, right at 
at its heart, it's twisted. Um, it's not any of those people's fault. It's, it's the system, you know, so mm-hmm. I support term limits. I, I support trying to get back to the, I mean, we, how much legislation does Congress pass anywhere, any year anyway? You know, I mean, it's gotten so polarized, they can't get much done. I don't know. Maybe if they were there, just there for three months, it might be better. And they had real jobs and they were like, had to go buy groceries with real people and and be with the rest of us uh, trying to, you know, balance our budget and live. Um, So anyway, it was a revelation. Meeting the Dalai Lama was a revelation and it started this internal process for me. And I ended up really with Michelle Bohana as my role model of somebody who was an activist. I'd never really hung out with activists before. And I thought, wow, she's amazing. And then she um, really encouraged me. And because I did Colorado Friends of Tibet, I, I moved from D.C. to Colorado, because I never saw my children. I know I was working 70 hours a week. I had a live-in nanny. You know, I was doing the whole Ginger Rogers thing. You know, <laughs> the, the woman has to be better than the man. you got to dance backwards and then high heels. And then come home and take care of the kids and clean the house. And so I was, I had two beautiful children and I was missing out on that. So I just, I just questioned everything. Really, yeah. that's the answer to your question. Is <laughs> Meeting the Dalai Lama made me question everything and 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 it, it transformed my life and the amazing thing is that it transformed the lives of my two children as well my both of my children are now buddhist um mm-hmm. tibetan buddhist and um one son is a translator of of uh, buddhism and and that's his professional position and the other is um married to a girl who uh, whose family escaped from tibet over the mountains um into from Tibet to India when she was three years old. Wow. So my grandson is part Tibetan, half Tibetan. So, you know, this little pebble that the Dalai Lama dropped in my pool and just went, woo, the ripple effects went out and out and out. They're still going out. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The ripple effects are huge. Mm-hmm. And I know that you and your husband co-founded Peace Jam in 1996. Um, and, you know, I would love if you could sort of share what inspired that and what, what the origin story behind Peace Jam is. So for me personally, it's because I saw the impact that the Dalai Lama made on me, right? It was life changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Yvonne, it was because he was living in a really, he's an artist. And you know, he always said he was an artist and a really great busboy because as an artist, you always have to have systems of support like other jobs. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> so he was a mean, awesome busboy. And, um, he was living like artists do in the roughest part of Denver. And he saw these young people and it was clear that they dropped out of school. Um, some Hispanic kids and he'd, they knew him. He was always around painting and we work at the restaurants at night. And he um, got into a conversation with them and he said, okay, do you know who the president of the United States is? And they said, we don't know. And we don't care because he doesn't represent us. And, I think you've dropped out of school. Why aren't you going to school? And they said, well, you know, we got a business. And it's like, okay, you got a business. You're, you're selling drugs in the neighborhood, but, you know, don't you want to have a better future? And, like, we don't care. And But he was worried about these kids, so he kept talking mm-hmm. to them and talking to them. And he they tripped over the subject of South Africa because this was right after the miracle in South Africa. And, mm-hmm. again, they didn't know who the president of the United States was, but they knew <laughs> all about Desmond Tutu 
and Nelson Mandela. And it was, and they went off, they went off talking about it and, and saying, you know, they, they stood up against apartheid and they were brave and they didn't use guns and they were amazing. And so this big light bulb went off over Yvonne's head, which is, wow, we should put kids together with Nobel Peace Prize winners, the ones who are the real activists, the ones who are you know, like putting their lives on the line, walking the talk, because there's all this energy that young people have. If, yep. if, if it could be channeled in a positive way, it could be amazing. What, you know, instead of letting young people fall between the cracks and give up and be helpless and hopeless, let's empower them. Let's, 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 let's put them together with the Nobel Peace Prize winners who are really leading the charge to make the world a better place. And then that would be incredible. So he, um, at that point in time, I was living in Colorado. So was he, and we were both helping out a friend who was doing a, a tribute to the beat poets, um, Jack Kerouac, those kind of Allen Ginsberg mm-hmm. poets at Naropa University, which was a Buddhist inspired university. Anyway, we were they both there for six months. And he came in after this meeting with these kids in his neighborhood who knew all about South Africa, Desmond <laughs> Tutu and Nelson Mandela. And he's like, Nobel Peace Prize winners and kids, we have to do this. And if, if you, you know my husband, but he's, he's um, this fabulous, charismatic French Bulgarian crazy man, right? Like when he, he, he's passionate about something. He just, yeah, just, he's not going to let it go. He's if, not yeah. going to let it go. So he just kept yeah. talking to me and talking to me and talking to me. And finally I said, okay, I will help you. I will help you. After three months of listening to him talk about it, we have to do this. Um, and so we, he said, well, get a meeting with the Dalai Lama. Cause he knew that I had helped the Dalai Lama. Right. Hmm. So we got a meeting with the Dalai Lama and Yvonne said, great. When's the Dalai Lama coming to meet with us? And I said, Oh no, <laughs> we are going to India to meet. You have an audience with the Dalai Lama. And he said, I have a dollar 57 in my checking account. Like, how am I going to get to India? So we had to borrow money from friends and we went to India and we met with the Dalai Lama and he said, I love this idea. I, I, I want to be connected with the youth in the world. They're always in the audience. I don't have anything special to do for them with them. I love this idea. I say yes. Yeah. But don't do it just with me. Do it with other Nobel laureates too. And so he gave us a list of seven more Nobel Peace Prize winners. And at the top of the list was Desmond Tutu. So we went back to Colorado and then we're in, in, in Yvonne's artist loft, right? Like he has no heating, asbestos is hanging out of the ceiling. <laughs> um, where it's freezing, but we have a phone and the Dalai Lama said, yes. So we got on the phone. Hi, hi, assistant to Desmond Tutu. You don't know us, but my name is Dawn. This is Yvonne. And we have a big idea. And the Dalai Lama said, yes, and we're going to come to South Africa. I mean, we just would not take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is back when you, before internet, when you had to fax everything. Oh God. Do you remember a fax? <laughs> yeah, I remember. It's very large. <laughs> I never learned how to use it. <laughs> so we were faxing things to South Africa. We show up. We take the cheapest possible flight from Colorado to South Africa, which means going the wrong way around the planet, right? You know, so it was like three days of flying to get there. Yeah, we change at the at the airport in the bathroom. We change into nice clothes. We go for our interview with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And he loved the idea and he was great. He did a fantastic interview for us. We filmed it. And then he said, yes, I will do it. <laughs> and then we just cold called the rest of the Nobel Peace Prize winners. We had 
eight Nobel Peace Prize winners say, yes, they would be our board of directors, not mm-hmm. just names on a letterhead. Are, they, they are the board of directors. Yvonne and I are not even on the board. Um, we really wanted this to be their international educational outreach program to the youth of the world. And we didn't have any money. We weren't incorporated yet. Um, but we were just on fire with this idea. We were so passionate about the idea that they said yes. And that's how we started. So I, I like to tell that story to young people because the mission of Peace Jam is to create a whole new generation of young leaders and to show them the power of an idea. If you have an idea yeah. and you're really passionate about an idea, that comes through. And could you, could you also speak about the One Billion Acts of Peace campaign? Because I've I've been asked recently to speak for things that have to do with like climate and and the youth and kindness and the youth and everything you know these these people asking me I'm like oh you should really look into the one billion acts of peace because your sort of like mission behind this thing you're asking me to speak for kind of reminds me of this at Peace Jam and it it just keeps coming up it's so interesting yeah it was it was really brilliant what the Nobel Peace Prize winners did we had them all uh, talk to us about what is their greatest fear for humanity and what is their greatest hope for humanity. So we spent two years in discussion with the Nobel Peace Prize winners on our board. By then it was, we were up to 10 and um, we asked them uh, to meet with each other. And so we recorded those conversations. Um, We provided, like you're providing here, the space for an in-depth conversation. We we provided Mm -hmm. that so they could talk to each other. And then for the 10th anniversary of the Peace Jam Foundation, we had all of the Nobel Peace Prize winners on the board of Peace Jam come together. So it was the largest gathering of Nobel Peace Prize winners ever held in the world, um, other than the Nobel Foundation right. itself. Yeah. And and they came together for Peace Jam's 10th anniversary, but they were saying to me and Yvonne, this is historic. We have to do something big because we're here together and we just spent all this time talking about what is the most important thing. So let's actually do something serious. Let's do a global call to action. And so it became the One Billion Acts of Peace campaign. It's really well put together. Um, we have over 100 million projects that young people have done around the world in 10 key areas, not just do something nice, but right. do something about climate change, do something to and racism and hate, do something about rights for women and girls, you know, do something in these 10 key areas where if we work in these 10 key areas, we can transform the future for all of humanity. And then we give awards to the young people who do the best. We hold up projects as, as examples. And so it's all about empowering the next generation of young leaders so that they can work for the change that we need. Clearly my generation, I'm 64 years old, we've blown it. I mean, you know, like, (laughs) take a look around. It's not so good. (laughs) But those who are young now, they have to live with this. They have to live with this. And coronavirus pandemic has pulled away some veils, right? Definitely. So, So we're seeing the reality of how bad things are, actually. That was kind of masked by the busyness. We're also busy, 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 busy. And we didn't have time to stop and look. Now we've had a chance to look, and boy, we need to make some changes, uh, some really transformational big changes. And so it's going to be this new generation of young people, um, ages you know, 5 to 35, who are going to make that happen. 
And that, that's who we work with and that's who we try and help and support and with the role models of the Nobel Peace Prize winners, because it's scary, you know, trying to work for change. And you need role mm-hmm. models, you need hard-won wisdom, you need case studies of things that worked. And yeah, so we can we can pass down that wisdom from our elders and, yep. and help hold up this new generation as they face this brave new world that we have in front of us right now. Yeah, we definitely need wisdom from our elders. Um I'm curious to hear what's been the sort of like most rewarding part of Peace Jam. Like, what are you most proud of? You know, when we started uh, Peace Jam, uh, Desmond Tutu asked us, how long is this going to go for? And we said, <laughs> Five years, you know, like we didn't know. Um, and what I'm really proud of is that it's it, we're, it's in 41 countries now. It, um it's reached so many young people, about 1.3 million young people have participated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's our 25th anniversary, as I said. And yes, it's a terrible time because the schools are having a hard time even being open. Yeah. But young people really have held on to this. They want it to, to go forward. They want it to stay alive. It's like their lifeline. Um, a way to stay connected. A way to stay connected. Um, a way to make a difference, a way to be in community. Um, so it's become people finding their tribe, you know, their, their real family, that that's really what Peace Jam has turned out to be. So I'm thrilled about that because that means it has a life of its own and will go on even after I'm gone because it's not about me. It's not about my husband. We were just two people who helped start it, but it's really a great idea of, Nobel Peace Prize winners mentoring youth to change the world. Yeah. Has anyone ever asked you who your favorite um, Nobel laureate is? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I wonder if anyone's ever brought this up to them. <laughs> well, yeah, we could ask we could ask that all, all the time. Really? Um, but what I like about, there are now 14 Nobel Peace Prize winners on our board. And it's funny because they, they, the original eight got to vote about who, who got on the board. Not just you don't get on the board just because you want a Nobel Peace Prize. They're, they're right. real picky. You know, they want people who are committed to working with the youth and, you know, like putting the mm-hmm. youth first. Um, and all of them are so different. That's what I love because I'm not Mother Teresa, you know. Who I'm is? Not, I'm not know? the Dalai Lama. But it doesn't matter what little body you're born into you know who who i i i popped out of my mother's womb looking like this this is this is the package i got yeah <laughs> if you if you're tibetan you would say this is one of many lifetimes i'm christian so i think i got one shot but <laughs> you know this is this is how i popped out i had no control over this um and so no matter how you're born onto this planet you can be extraordinary. You have goodness in you. You have greatness in you. You can do amazing things. You could help at least one other person. Just reach out your hand. You can do it. And mm-hmm. if we all did that, the world would be transformed. So I love the fact that all of the Nobel Peace Prize winners are so different because it so means whoever you are, whatever your background, no matter what, you are important, precious, unique, and you can make a powerful difference. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, because I'm Christian and I love your grandfather and he married us in his church in Cape Town, <laughs> South Africa. And then he told us we are never allowed to get divorced. Yeah. <laughs> he's by far for me, like spiritually, he's, he's my father. But 
I love all of them. Mm-hmm. I love all of them. I'll always be grateful for the Dalai Lama for saying yes first and starting it. Yeah. Founding member and for transforming my life and the lives of everyone that I know. You are right. They are very different. I had um, Jody Williams on the podcast and, and then we talked about, you know, how Betty Williams had just passed and, mm-hmm. and it's like, it's just, yeah, to think about all of them and how different they are, but like such big personalities still. Yes. yes. Wow. And is there a project, maybe one or two projects that the young people have come up with that like has really, really inspired you? There are so many. Um, one of the first projects that the young people came up with was, was a way to save energy at school. And it's something that the teachers at the school and the administration at the school have been trying for a long time is to get um, reduce energy consumption and increase recycling. Mm-hmm. But when it was coming from adults, the teenagers at the school didn't care. But when the teenagers in the PCM club at the school uh, started to care, then it changed. And they um, did education campaigns and just unplugging your computer every day, everything that's plugged in and turned on. If you turn it off when you go home, it actually saves a lot of energy. And they started recycling and they actually saved just in the energy bill for their school, $60,000 a year in the first year, (gasps) which is enough money to hire another teacher. Oh my goodness. But it, it didn't happen at all when the adults wanted to do it. It happened when the young people said, oh, we want to do this. We, you know, do it for us. Right. You know, this is something that belongs to us. We, we are going to transform the school and make it energy conscious. So that was one of the first projects that happened under the Billion Acts of Peace campaign. And it was really exciting to me because it just shows the power of that youth spirit, that youth mm-hmm. voice, you know, that's, that's so belittled. Oh, they're just kids. They're just teenagers. Oh, they're trouble. But no, I mean, they can really make a huge difference. And then one, another project that I really love is um, during the, an outbreak of, of Ebola um, in Ghana, these, these young people in the Pisham Ghana Club, they were out there educating about wow. health, you know, like, I mean, okay, we're scared of coronavirus. Right. Imagine Ebola, right? I would just be in my house locked in my closet. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's scary. That's a really scary way to die. And these kids are out there uh, teaching about um, masking and gloves and the sanitary things that people need to do to clean and how to follow the rules and keep yourself safe. And it, that, that epidemic was controlled very quickly. I don't know if you watched that when that happened, but it broke out and everyone was like, no. And then all of a sudden it was under control. And it was a lot of citizens who got involved in controlling it. It wasn't just the government. And a lot of them were, were young people, young Peace Gem Club people um, yeah. who took it on as a cause. And I was wow. really incredibly proud of them for that. I mean, I would be too. <laughs> we need we need them well i know we have it in the u.s but we maybe we need some people to listen to the peace jam youth here a little bit more i think so i mean another one that just happened is the young woman who's uh the on the leadership board of the peace jam club at florida state university mm-hmm. so they had every year in the usa there's a lockdown for what three months four months 
And it's really hard for college students because, you know, they're locked in their dorms and they, or they're stuck at home and they're trying to learn online and there's a lot of depression and there's a lot of anxiety. And so um, they, the Peace Jam Club at that university was always doing projects in the community. Well, they decide, okay, our project's going to be our fellow brothers and sisters, our, our fellow students. We're going right. to worry about their mental health. And so they became this call-in center for everybody who is a Florida State University student to ta- have somebody to talk to, like a buddy system, and to, to be there for them. And, um, you know, this girl just won the Humanitarian of the Year Award from Florida State University wow. because of what she did. You know, like she was under lockdown too, but instead of Sort of going inwards. Instead of going she, outwards, yeah. she said, okay, who needs help right now? Okay, it's just like everybody who was in my class was yeah. locked up. So let's let's help each other. So yeah, and, and just releasing that energy. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're I remember when I was a teenager and feeling very helpless and hopeless and being very focused in here. And when you learn about great leaders around the world who maybe were very poor, but they were able to make a real difference in their part of the world. And then you see the suffering that's in other parts of the world. And you think, wow, it's, it's not just me being 13 is hard. Yes. But look at all the suffering around the world and look at all the human rights issues around the world and look at the, just the inequality. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so overwhelming and it's been going on for so long and it has to be addressed. And, 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 I'm going to put my energy there. And when you put your energy there, then like, it's like this, this power inside you gets unleashed. Yeah. And so that's what happens with peace gym. And it puts, it puts your life into perspective as well. It, it puts your life into perspective. And one young person said, peace gym sees the goodness and the greatness in you. Peace gym reaches down in and pulls it out and holds it up to the light. Mm, I like that. Yeah. And I know that you, you know, you spoke about earlier how you're working on the films. Um, and I would say most people know the Dalai Lama is sort of a man of faith. And in our world, we sort of, you know, we put people into boxes and, and, and leave them there. Um, but can you speak about your documentary film, The Dalai Lama Scientist? Because I don't think people know the sort of like scientist side of him. Yeah, he always says that if he hadn't been picked as the reincarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama, he would have been like an engineer or an electrician. (laughs) (laughs) He just loves science and he loves taking things apart. He would take apart watches. He would take apart any like a fan, you know, like he just wants to know how does it work? How does it work? You know, that's how his brain is wired up. And he loves to learn his very curious, very curious spirit. So even as a young boy, he was given a gift as a, I'll back up for those who don't know about Tibetan Buddhism. They, they believe that uh, when the current leader passes away, then and reincar- he's reincarnated um, uh, because of this commitment to continue to be reborn on planet earth until all suffering is ended mm-hmm. for human beings. So when the 13th Dalai Lama died, they looked for signs and they pointed to this tiny little farming village in the far corner of Tibet, with this really poor peasant farming family. And they came and they picked him. He was three, right? And wow, did they make a good choice because he has been a great Dalai Lama. <laughs> you know, I don't know whether this is real or not, this reincarnation yeah. thing, but man, they made a great choice. And, um, and he was always very bright and always very curious. When he was in the Potala Palace in Lhasa, he would get gifts and somebody gave him the gift of a telescope and he would study the, 
moon and he had ideas about um, the shadows on, on the moon and that turned out to be right. It was against what the Tibetan understanding of the solar system was, but he, at an early age, he was making these conclusions that were correct. And when he had a chance after he had to leave Tibet because of the Chinese, um, communist Chinese invasion and them trying to capture him personally, and he uh, escaped. And then there was a refugee community in India and he spent a good 15, 20 years um, helping them to survive. But once that was all set up and, and happening, then he had a chance to actually learn some science because he was in the West. And he um, had a chance to meet with some physicists, who uh, two who became his mentors. And mm -hmm. 35 years ago, he started with these dialogues uh, that were hosted by the Mind and Life Institute and where he met with scientists who are at the cutting edge of what's happening in Western science. And there's a whole tradition in Buddhism of Eastern science. So when you think about Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, it's really three things. There's one that's like the faith part. Um, there's one that's, it's like a philosophy. Um, so you can meet people who are following Tibetan Buddhism, but it's, it's more of a philosophy of life. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is the science of it. And so the monks would use their scientific method was deep analysis um, through meditation. Mm -hmm. And the Buddha himself said, don't believe anything just because I said it, you know, test it for yourself, make sure it's true. So there's a, there's a real rigorous understanding of the mind and reality. And the crazy thing is when you watch this film, the, the Dalai Lama scientist, you see how the Tibetan Buddhists, actually a lot of the crazy, quirky, quirky things that are in uh, physics right now, uh, quantum physics, yeah. the Buddhists were saying these things a thousand years ago. So they came at it from different angles, but they both arrived at the same, the place. same place. Wow. So it's really fascinating. And it's, and it's been an experience over 35 years where the scientists have opened up new fields of inquiry based on the time they've spent with the Dalai Lama and the questions that he's asked. And also he has created changes in the Tibetan Buddhist system where science is taught as a discipline now in all of the monasteries, the first change in monastic education in over a thousand years. And there are a whole generation of um, Tibetan scientists coming up now who are uh, ready, willing, and able to partner with Western scientists so that this conversation continues on. So it's not just the Dalai Lama and some scientists, which is how it started, but it's Western scientists with um, Tibetan scientists who are monks, right? who um, have been trained because the Dalai Lama made this an official part of the curriculum and is funding this research. So it's, it's the best of the East and West coming together. Wow. And it's, it's really very exciting. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the sort of questions that you asked the Nobel laureates when you were doing the One Billion Acts of Peace or before you did that campaign. Um, and funny enough, those are also the questions that I use as my sort of like closeout. And so I'm wondering, what is your greatest fear for humanity? Oh, I, I, I'm really afraid about the way that we're 
not loving each other. It's, it's really hard for me to see. We're not seeing each other as human. It's really upsetting to me. You know, when I, in 1976, when I first worked for the U.S. Congress, everybody was still friends, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. Okay, we would fight the good fight during the day, but at night you'd go out to the bar and you'd have a beer together. You know, you, you'd have lunch together. It wasn't like this. Um, um, the polarization, it's not just happening in the USA. It's happening right. all over the world. It's, it's an opportunity right now because of the pandemic for um, authoritarian leaders, um, the, the dictatorship in Myanmar, but there's so many countries where uh, strongman kind of leaders are exploiting this uh, time mm-hmm. to take more power. And the fear, and, yeah. And the fear, absolutely. While we're, we're in our house, we're cowering, we're fear, afraid, we're, we're scared. And, you know, we're struggling to feed our families and, you know, so those in power are, are taking advantage of the situation to, to have more resources and power um, to themselves. And it's, it's really, really bad. Uh, I'm, a, we're, I'm afraid for democracy. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid uh, of us losing our common humanity um, as climate change happens and, oh, there's all these uh, people migrating, everybody, won't be able to stay where they live right now, no. right? A lot of people are going to have to move. And are we going to be generous or are we going to be like we've shown ourselves to be with coronavirus, where it's me first, I get out the, I get not one, two, I get three shots before I give you anything, right? <laughs> Even though it's crazy because this whole thing's going to keep going on until right. everybody gets a shot. So everybody Let's, should yeah. get a shot. Like the very most intelligent thing to do is share it with everybody. But the, no, we did the opposite. So that, that scares me. It's, it, um, I'm, I'm, again, that's why we need role models. We need um, moral voices to, to, to listen to because uh, we're, we're better than this. And what is your greatest hope for humanity? My greatest hope for humanity is young people. They believe. They still believe. They, even the toughest teenager who just wants to be loved, you know, you scratch a little bit in the heart and the soul and it's all right there. And they just want to be loved. They just want to belong. They just want to matter, to have somebody care about them, to make the difference in some way. Um, and and you, you, you look at young people, there's something I call Dalai Lama eyes. When I first met the Dalai Lama, he looked at me and he didn't, I know I probably look funny to him, but he didn't look look at my package that I come on. He looked right in my eyes and like down into my soul. And it, it really, at my heart, I'm seven years old. I'm, a, I'm seven years old. That's, that's my essential nature. And he saw it, you know, he's, but I just became like a seven-year-old child. Um, so when you look at young people in that way, not judging them, but just looking at them with curiosity, see who's in there, right? That's a, you've seen the Dalai Lama. Do yep. that. He like looks at you and he's like, who's in there? Ooh, I want to see that soul. Um, and you you give that kind of attention to someone, right, to their heart and soul without judging, just being curious and, and embracing them. It's like a flower opening up to the sun. You know, the way that young people blossom when they just get that. A lot of the young people who participate in Peace Jam say it was the very first time they felt like their voice was ever heard. 
Right. And and because there's no right answer or no wrong answer with Keisha. And we just want them to be empowered and, and for them to have a chance to come up with brand new solutions to problems. And so it's a completely different thing for a lot of young people. It's just, it's exhilarating and unleashing the goodness and the greatness that's already there in their hearts and souls and the intelligence and the energy and the savvy and the willing to work hard and mm-hmm. enthusiasm. Uh, unleashing that is, is what we're all about. And I've seen it, the power of it over and over and over again. So I'm, I have great hope for the future when I think about the young people. Wonderful. Well, Don, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was lovely to speak with you. It was wonderful to speak with you too. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Marketing and digital growth, Kayla Gillis. And partnerships, Natalie Hope. <laughs>